Hey, everybody. Hello, hello, hello. I'm so sorry for the delay. Um, if you will believe it, I was recording an episode of Bad Faith Podcast with a really excellent upcoming guest, and it went a little bit long, and I was reluctant to cut him off. But I think when you hear it, you will forgive me. I am going to look for my co-host, who should be here shortly. The one, the only, you know him, you love him. Nathan J. Robinson of Current Affairs, who is going to join us today to get into our topic. Um, why is the left unwilling to defend themselves in debate? Now, some of you might be asking, is this really true? Brianna, is this really fair? Obviously, I don't think it's true of myself. Most of you are probably aware of the fact that I have recently taken on such heavyweights as, you know, Andrew Sullivan. I'm willing to talk to people who are associated with the so-called IDW, like Thomas Chatterson Williams and um, Glenn Lowry. And I hope to have other similar guests on the show soon. And Nathan Robinson, I think, has really distinguished himself insofar as that he reads the books of all of these people and really digs in and confronts their arguments head on. Instead of doing what I think a lot of folks on the left do, on the broad left do, which is to say, ideologically, I'm different from these people. Ideologically, I find their views to be reprehensible, condemnable, contemptible, and therefore it's not worth even recognizing. I don't want to platform these people. I don't want to engage with their work. They're, they are racist. They are prejudiced. They are white supremacists. They are whatever it is which may or may not be true, but there is sometimes an over-reliance, I think, on that language as opposed to doing the kind of direct engagement that I think can really actually, if not change the opinion of the person that you are debating, start to affect the audience of the people who follow those kind of big names that occupy so much intellectual space, the Jordan Peters of Petersons of the world, et cetera. And I know that a lot of people even after I think what was a really useful, productive, friendly exchange with Andrew Sullivan said, okay, I'm going to come over and start listening to Bad Faith and some of these ideas, because I think there is oftentimes a, a kernel of truth in the critique that's coming from people who are on the other side of the ideological aisle, right? Like I got myself my start writing for Current Affairs um, with Nathan J. Robinson because I saw overreaches on the left. I saw the way that cultural appropriation was being used in an overly broad way that became kind of absurd and which undermined, I think, the credibility of the left. So I wrote a piece on cultural appropriation and how to, defirm it, uh, how to define it in more materialist terms in a way that didn't get me in a place where I'm supposed to be like caring a ton about whether or not Kim Kardashian wears cornrows, right? And to say, well, maybe the issue is that we have this um, unequal distribution of resources in this country. That means that people from different groups that have been historically advantaged financially are able to, let's say, open a Mexican restaurant and profit off of it more so than someone who might themselves be Mexican. And that we need to stop complaining so much about this white person making the money or having a Mexican restaurant and talk about the bedrock fundamental economic inequality instead. And it was the same with identity politics. I initially started writing about identity politics because it seemed so obvious that it was jumping the shark. And that so many of the people in our liberal, predominantly white and predominantly to the point made by Bertrand Cooper, affluent, even if diverse, media class were basically choosing to privilege identity over, over everything else because it meant that despite their extreme privilege and affluence and control and power in society, it meant that they still had a bone to pick and some credibility in a space that they arguably did not earn. 
So that being said, I am looking in the chat for Nathan and I don't see him yet. I apologize for not being as competent with this. Oh, here he is DMing me. Come in the app, Nathan. So maybe I will take some questions. I know that people also are curious to get my response to the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict. I know that's what's everybody what's on everybody's mind right now. Um, I don't know if you listened to uh, my episode with um, Ole. I know it was controversial. People felt of two minds about it. Um, Some people felt like, you know, she took too strong a position um, that was kind of ideological and that we should have spent more time kind of unpacking the facts. But I do think in the latter half of the episode we did, and I pushed back on some of the kind of presumptions about whether or not we would feel the same way about Kyle Rittenhouse if the politics of the people of the in the scenario were flipped. And I think that we wrestled with that in a way that was productive and I think somewhat illuminating. But um, I'd like to hear from you. I think that lots of us don't didn't find the verdict surprising, even though it's or even necessarily wrong, even though it's disappointing insofar as it perhaps reflects our broader political reality and the inequities of our justice system. Um, so I see that Nick has something to say. So let's hear from Nick Grayson. Hey, Bree. Hey, Nick. Uh, How's it going? Hey, uh, first time, long time. Uh, what, this is amazing. Uh, <laughs> and uh, just up front, I really want to thank you for something. I'm the person in the uh, bad faith DMs that incessantly bugged you to reach out, to check out Jennifer Briney and get her on your show. Oh, well, thank you so much, Nick. Yeah. I adore it's, her. I'm a huge believer in her and that show and big supporter. And it was so nice of you to just like, you know, entertain a rando in your messages to check her out. And <laughs> um, I can't thank you enough. Thanks so much for doing that no thank you she's been such a uh, a benefit to the show and has enriched my worldview so much and i listen to her show now regularly and i gotta say sometimes we could have a little bit of a shallow bench on the online left in terms of the policy experts we come on we, we have on and as much as i adore david dan and david sirota i think sometimes it would be nice to have a policy expert that literally wasn't named david <laughs> It, it would be great, right? But she has big fans of yours, yes. so I mean, it, it still kind of bleeds over into it. But um, for anyone else that's listening, she is criminally underrated and underutilized and underfunded. Like, uh, yeah. But um, so the big thing that I wanted to get into, Brie, and I, and I think this kind of covers the broad topic and is relevant to today. But um, so kind of the things that I'm like thinking about or wrestling with and the whole concept of like the the left not being able to defend itself. I don't quite see that as being the problem. In fact, I think a lot of principled leftists suffer from the problem that they're actually kind of the most heavily unfairly scrutinized in a weird way. Like, I see people Mm. like, to me, and, and maybe this is a weird, broad association to make, but if I were to track, like, in terms of incredibly unfair, incendiary, one-sided, deliberately misleading narratives, like in order, I think of Ralph Nader, I think of Bernie Sanders, I think of Jill Stein, I think of Howie Hawkins, I think of Russiagate, I think of uh, Dave Chappelle, I think of even Rittenhouse, because the thing that keeps happening is that 
there is a narrative that's kind of constructed about this thing that very deliberately wants people to feel a certain way about this, but also with this kind of tacit thing underlying it that you're basically not allowed to independently vet any of these things for yourself to really assess everything, come to and share your own conclusion about it. Because if you do, you're kind of ostracized in a weird way. Like if you dared to kind of go against the narrative and present a different truth, the backlash that you get from all sides is really weird. And part of what I think might be happening, and you can tell me if I'm like off base or not, And I think this kind Mm -hmm. of has to do with the whole 2016 Bernie campaign versus the 2021. Mm -hmm. My take is the reason why he was so successful in 2016 is that he did have a broad message that was really universal that a lot of people were hearing for the first time and interested in. And I feel like in 2020, and I get why he did it, and I was supportive of it, but I feel like the message was like really tailored to kind of this broad Uh, idea of what like liberals really want but I think what that really kind of exposed is that a lot of people that claim to be liberal are kind of asking for kind of a a level of like reverence or adherence that that isn't really honest they're just kind of creating this new this newer further goalpost that you keep kind of have to bending to and accepting and I do wonder if part of this whole problem is that we're just so mired in this idea that our messaging or our politics or our ideology has to be framed in such a way to kind of go after the liberal voting base but really my impression of it after all this is that like I don't really think most of them are honest and if they are maybe they are a negligible part of the electorate and the whole idea of even reaching out to somebody that identifies as like right wing or populist or anti-liberal with kind of even just a universal policy, like healthcare, or even like, uh, I think about this all the time. Like I live in Kansas and I'm surrounded by a bunch of rural areas. Like if somebody actually had the guts to run as an independent and run on just even marijuana, like the legalization of it and the growing of it, not just because it's a recreational thing that like everybody agrees is good, but marijuana could be like a vital part of fighting climate change, like growing hemp or industrial hemp. It could present, you know, an alternative to plastic. It could be a way to actually pull more carbon out of the air. It grows fast into many conditions. It, you know, replenishes soil. But if you went with that message to rural America, there are so many terrible actors that will immediately just kind of go after you and say that you're the worst version of something. And since those narratives are so pervasive and you feel so much social pressure to just kind of believe them no matter what, that's kind of what does people in. And I feel like part of what needs to happen is people just need to accept that they're going to be demonized and just kind of grin and bear it and get through it. So if I, if I understand you correctly, I think I agree, which is that I, and, and welcome Nathan to the, to the chat. Hello. Um, we got him in here. So I want you to weigh in as well. But what I do, so two things. One, I think 2016 to 2020, I also observed some narrative shifts that may or may not have been helpful, but I do also want to honor the extent to which Bernie got creamed in 2016 and the years after on this idea that he wasn't woke enough. Now, The question is, should he have just fundamentally ignored that or should he have done some things to cut it off at the past? So, for example, right after Bernie announced and before I joined the campaign, I remember there was this frenzy of media attention around the idea that all of these 2020 candidates were going to have a position on reparations. Now, do I do I associate, you know, uh, Julian Castro or you know, Cory Booker or uh, Elizabeth Warren with their hardcore reparation stance? Have I heard them talk about reparations before then? 
or after, let's say, April of 2019? Absolutely not, because it was an all in bad faith, right? But there was this understanding that because Bernie very famously gave what was perceived to be a bad answer on reparations back in 2016, the same answer, by the way, that Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton gave, but never mind, that we could take him out early, we could clobber him on the idea that he's not good for Black people, right? That's always been the narrative about Bernie Sanders, the only thing that you could ever dream to impeach him on, or that someone who has neoliberal politics to get to the left of him on, is that you can out him, right? And there are a lot of people who I think were pushing that and complete and total bad faith, but there are also a lot of tastemakers in the media who can convince the populace that that stuff matters and that Bernie not you know using a certain kind of words or language is actually indic- indicative of his commitment to a community. And so that's why I always am kind of obsessed with, in a way that some people disagree with, what the Don Lemons of the world are saying, what the Julian Reeds of the world are saying, because they are manufacturing consent among a group of people who don't have the time and space to really dig in necessarily to whether or not a politician is committed to a community. And so this woke language isn't there on its own, right? Quote, unquote, I'm using quotation marks when I say woke, right? It's, it's, it, it has been a shorthand of sorts that has been useful to, for people to identify which candidates have been committed to the, to the community, which is why I think there's like kind of this bifurcated reaction to folks when we're talking about whether or not we should continue to use woke speak. Because for some people, at, you know, committing to certain policies and principles and using certain kinds of language was an indicator of them being genuinely committed, or at least in the scope of neoliberal candidates, the most committed to X, Y, and Z policy. And we haven't had a lot of examples of someone who kind of isn't that great of speaking that way or presenting themselves that way, like Bernie, who actually comes through in a pinch and is committed. In fact, ev- no one is committed. Everybody betrays the public, right? And so the wokeness is all that's really left for people to rely on or even like aspire to in a candidate. And so I don't, I don't know if that, if that answers, you know, responds directly to your, to your point. Uh, honestly, Bree, you had me at, I think I agree with you. So. <laughs> well, what, let's bring Nathan, Nathan in. Nathan, I don't know. I introduced you earlier when you were off screen. Obviously Nathan is the founder of current affairs magazine. Do you, do you have thoughts on this question of, um, whether or not it is true that the left mm-hmm. uh, feels like perhaps is under mm-hmm. more assault. Is that what you, is that what you said, Nick, that like they have to defend themselves more on these questions of, well, uh, of, of, yeah, go ahead. Let me give you an example. And Nathan, I, I'm, I'm sure you're a very nice person. I used to engage with you on Twitter a bit back when I, I still did that before I just wanted to tear my hair out every time I looked at the screen and stopped. But um And I don't mean to put you on a hot seat, but I'll just give you an example. Like last year, the documentary Planet of the Humans came out, which like I watched it for myself. I thought the message of it was deeply persuasive and compelling, but overwhelmingly what the response to it was by, I think, honestly, some pretty bad faith actors like take Josh Fox, for example, who the Grey Zone did an expose on him that he does stand to massively financially benefit by selling everybody kind of the lie of, you know, uh, capitalistic green technology and he was at the forefront of this kind of censorship effort and honestly nathan like one of the most again i don't mean to put you on a hot seat i'm not trying to like but i remember that you were like one of those people on twitter that basically Mm. took the side that it needed to be censored and to me that's kind of a weird example of what happens which is that you know the the narrative about why these things are dangerous overrides the kind of insistence that people should just check things out and decide for themselves 
Well, let's give, yeah, thanks, Nick. Let's give Nathan a chance uh, to respond. I, I, if, that's, if that's the case, I certainly don't remember it. Um, I, I, I'm generally pretty anti, uh, anti-censorship, anti of the humans. I, I, my position generally on things is that uh, uh, it's counterproductive to remove them because uh, then people's uh, opinion of them becomes based on rumor rather than an examination of what is actually in them. I... I, I I, I, I don't remember advocating that Planet of the Humans be uh, be censored. Um, I certainly don't believe that it ought to be because I think that people ought to respond to the arguments that are that are made in it. Um, so if I did say anything that implied that, I think that uh, that's wrong. And so I think I agree. I mean, I completely agree with you that uh, uh, that film, controversial as it was, uh, ought to be you know watched and examined and responded to and. Um, I, I didn't actually, I didn't even watch the film myself. I never even saw Planet of the Humans. Were you, did you engage in any of the kind of media? I, I know that I stayed out of that. I, I remember I was, looking, I was busy during yeah, the campaign and just didn't have the bandwidth to engage in what was going on there. I, my, my big worry over YouTube censorship generally is that I know I'm going to fall victim to it sooner or later if it starts, uh, if things start getting yanked. Um, well, well if, let me ask you this then. Let's take a different example because I think I understand the spirit of what Nick is asking about. I know, for example, that I have some, you know, unorthodox to the left opinions that I have declined to talk about. There are people, friends of mine, even on the left, who will take positions on Twitter that I personally disagree with. And I tend to choose to keep my feelings about it to myself, in part because I don't have to weigh in on every single thing. It's just not that big a deal. But also in part because I don't necessarily want to catch that heat, right? Like, I got to pick my battles, you know. If I'm in the middle of a three-week turn of being um, described as a, like a Nazi kisser, I don't don't necessarily want to court another drama <laughs> until that dies down. But you know, maybe even that's an example, right? Like there are people who are very upset with me because I have a different approach to addressing the rise of white nationalism than certain others, right? Like I believe that there is still some room for persuasion when we're talking about white conservative voters, perhaps not the most extreme, but some of them, some white conservative voters, whereas other people think it's about banishment and shaming, et cetera. You know, there are some people who are very upset with my Dave Chappelle episode where, you know, even we conceded, okay, Dave Chappelle self-described as a turf. Let's just concede that he's, you know, self-described transphobe. Is there a point worth engaging with in this about how the public relatively treats his antagonistic, bigoted jokes about other groups women, lesbians, you know, people, groups that he doesn't belong to, and and Black people, right? And how they're treating his derogatory remarks about trans people. Like, is there, is there a there there? Maybe there isn't, but can we have a conversation about it? And when you frame stuff like that up, you know that there are a lot of people who will simply say, you're a turf, um, just asking questions and it's an excuse to perpetuate bigotry and there are people who, you know, fell out of favor with me as a consequence of me having that conversation. So do you think that there are undue pressures, disproportionate pressures on the left against engaging with controversial ideas that puts us potentially at a disadvantage to the right? I'd say, yes, there are. But I try to be, I also want to be careful not to stray into what maddens me about the right which is conflating often like a bunch of people disagreeing with you or being very angry with you with 
censorship or the shutting down of discussion? Because I think there are sort of important distinctions we need to make, right? Like, okay, when I get when I say something about Karl Marx on Twitter, like I the, the first time I said something <laughs> about Karl Marx dismissively, I got like hundreds and hundreds of PSA <laughs> members denouncing me, calling me a fake socialist, just all sorts of things on Twitter. And I just stopped reading them. And I, I don't think I've read mentions and replies since then. I just made it a part of God and, bless you. And I just stopped reading it. And it, it made my mental health way better. Um, and there is a question of what constitutes, I think, an undue pressure, right? So are those people who are all mad at me about my takes on Marx, are they being unreasonable? Are they exerting a sort of coercive uh, social pressure over me where if you if you stray from the, the correct party line, people shame you, right? Or are they engaging in disagreement of the kind that is perfectly legitimate? Do I agree that there is a thing in leftists where we get really mad really quickly about someone like not using the correct phrasing about something and that it's a Mm-hmm. friggin minefield yes <laughs> i do i do agree that we have that thing in us but i also think there are serious questions about okay but you know what is just like people saying things in response and it's like more treating speech with more speech versus what censorship and i think some things that are responding to speech with more speech are, are kind of unfairly get classified as censorship or shutting down but short of censorship, short of c- c- censorship, Nathan, sometimes yeah. I feel like there's a difference between someone saying, Brianna, I listened to your episode <clears throat> and I don't think there's anything to be taken away from Dave Chappelle, even if he had half a point. The way that he chose to make it was so inflammatory and so designed to offend, but I have trouble taking seriously that he is really trying to start a good faith conversation. Like, reasonable minds can disagree. I would take that and be like, you know what? Fair enough. Okay. Uh, Fair enough. But there's another kind of comment that says, how dare you discuss this? You're not, you know, you don't, you aren't entitled. You're not qualified to discuss it. You're not qualified to have an opinion on it. And you are in fact, a a trans radical exclusionary, a, a trans exclusionary radical feminist. You hate trans people. You're doing violence to trans people. You are a bad leftist. You are a bad person. And I don't think that anybody else should listen to you, talk to you, or credit anything that you have to say forever. Now, that person who says that to me has no ability to censor me. They're just another random person on the internet. Yeah. But that kind of opinion seeding sometimes right. sticks. And you have people on the left, who you and I both know, who have had a certain degree of reputational damage that you can say may or may not have resulted in financial consequences that we maybe do yeah. or do not care about. But certainly, you know, am I not supposed to, you know, I, I let me just say, I experienced that kind of critique differently than, eh, I, I didn't like what you said. And I even maybe even found it hateful. I just disagree with you. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I think there is a distinction between those two things, and I wish we would be able to have more calm and intellectualized discussions about things. I don't like denunciation of people and uh, putting people in the in the bad person box where we're like, ah, they had the bad take, so now they're the bad person. And remember the bad take they had, so you can't you can't talk to that person because we put them in the bad box. I I don't like that that style <laughs> of discourse at all. What? But what do you mean by sticks? Right? It sticks. Is it is it just a few hundred people who are the kind of people who just sit around all day getting mad on the internet? Um, or is it are there actual serious consequences? To what extent are the consequences based on placing value on the opinions of the particular people who are mad? Well, I think that's it. I think that's why the, the intra-left criticism hurts so much. Like, I don't care if some conservative, you know, what's his name? Sobiak, you know, he was, he quote tweeted one of my tweets the other day and I was like, I don't have the energy for this. Let me just delete it and move on. But like, I don't care if he's mad at me because we disagree because we have fundamentally different ideologies. I'm hurt when someone is like, you love Nazis or, <laughs> you know, you hate trans people. Why, because, why are you hurt? I don't love Nazis and it's mean. <laughs> I, I get, that doesn't answer the question though. Why does it? Why do you okay, care okay, here, here, what someone what who's unreasonable because thinks it's it? it's not what they think. It's Here's what it is. I, I have been on Twitter and have tweeted about something completely innocuous and seen in my mentions someone say, oh, don't listen to Brie. She is, she loves Nazis or she she's a Terp. Right. And then someone else who is completely unfamiliar with the discourse say, oh, really? Oh, my God. What did she say? What did she do? And then someone else, and go ahead, someone else will explain, oh, she thinks that we should make friends with Nazis and that she loves to hug and kiss Nazis. And they're like, oh, gosh, I had no idea. Thanks for letting me know. And so now this person who has no, no idea is taking this as gospel truth. And at a certain point, now that, like, it doesn't really bother me because obviously that's absurd and, like, nobody can, like, cr really credibly believes that. But there are versions of that that exist in the world. So I just had this talk with Thomas Chatterson Williams, you know. There's he wrote in his book about hitting his high school girlfriend, something yeah. he's ashamed of, and you can choose not to like him for the rest of his life for having done that. Although as an abolitionist and a leftist, that's a little bit of a squeaky position to take. But he he admits to having hit his girlfriend in high school. It happened the one time, and he's ashamed of it. He wrote about it in his book, which is a pretty vulnerable book, and he discloses a lot of vulnerable things about himself and his intimate personal life. Now on Twitter, he isn't a teenager who made a mistake. <laughs> he is Thomas Chatterson yeah. Williams beats women's women and blames it on black culture. Like that's just gospel truth online. Now, when I, when I spoke to him about it after our interview, and I hope this isn't, you know, I'll speak in big terms. He was like, yeah, it doesn't really like that's the internet in real life. I'm invited to HBCUs and I talk to these black students and they love me and it's not an issue. And I just, you, I'm just not on Twitter. And I think that's a very healthy attitude. I, maybe I'm weak, Nathan, Maybe I need to have growth. <laughs> Maybe I care too much. My heart is too big, Nathan. <laughs> you are super, you're empathizing with unreasonable people. This is what's happening, right? You are valuing people who are objectively unreasonable and don't care about you. And this is a dialogue taking place among the unreasonable. No, no sensible person interested in a serious discussion it, it could possibly believe anything that is being said. So it is taking place among the unreasonable. And so I don't think we can give it too much. I do think his attitude is incredibly healthy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I called you. Like we, we spoke for the first time in a while shortly after I had had my little um, 
antagonistic death step on the show. And you were like so calm and reasonable and provided some much needed perspective. And I thank you for that. But I guess the reason that we're talking about this, the reason that we're talking about that particular phenomena is because it was posited by one of the people in this room as the reason why the left arguably maybe stays away from difficult subjects and has a greater degree of like uh, orthodoxy that's required to be a part of the left than Mm. the right. And how much do we think that that kind of self-policing is part of it? And is there something credible? Is there something understandable? Is there is there a good reason why the left has evolved to police its own borders so aggressively? Which is a little ironic given our politics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but why is the left policing the borders so strongly? Well, well, I, there, one one defense of the left on this mm-hmm. is that I do think that leftists tend to be people who have a hypersensitivity to injustice, right? Mm. This is the charitable read of it, right? Mm. If you want to, if you want to try and empathize with the people who are doing this um, and not see them as just self-righteous, uh, you know, they, there's the books, the new Puritans or whatever, they're people who are, or the woke religion, they're just these religious ideologues. If you, if you want to, the, the most charitable read of this is that, you know, we as leftists, get upset and outraged by things that are accepted as normal by a lot of other people. We look at society and things that just pass by without comment, um, we see as outrageous and disgusting and despicable. So Mm -hmm. there is a kind of sensitivity that puts you on the left in the first place. Because if you didn't have a sort of sensitivity to injustice, if you weren't looking for it in places where other people didn't see it, you wouldn't be on our side to begin with. So I think there is probably a reason related to our politics that helps to explain why there is a tendency to react to anything that could be perceived as uh, racism, sexism, transphobia, and be really like, you know, and shut it down real quick because we think those things are horrible. We're on the lookout for those things. We think those things matter. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, and, to, that, and to that point, you know, part of why it bothers me when I get a certain kind of accusation is, is because I do spend a lot of time doing a lot of introspection and interrogating my own views. Like, and yeah. My friends and family know that when I write something that's like a hot take on race or I come up with a new opinion that I know is maybe out of step with what probably the majority of black people would think. I have my little council of black friends <laughs> or I talk to my mom and I'm like, guys, have I taken it too far this time? Like, do you get you know, are you picking up what I'm putting down? Like, just offer me some pushback. Like, do I need to refine this argument at all? And sometimes they're like, yeah, this is spicy, but like, I get what you're saying and it's fine. Sometimes my mom is like, I don't know that you needed to go quite so hard at, you know, <laughs> the civil rights hero in this article. <laughs> and I'm like, good point, mom. I'll ratchet it back 20% like to make myself heard, right? <laughs> so I can make sure that no one is you know, stopped in their tracks yeah. by this John Lewis dig, you know, like I, I, yeah. and I, and I appreciate their advice. So then when I've already kind of done a kind of self-censorship, mm. you know, it's not, it's not, it's not censorship, but I have reflected on how I'm going to be understood, right? Mm. And then someone accuses me of kind of not having that sensitivity. It does feel, I guess, a little bit like a double whammy. Yeah, I I appreciate that point because it's... uh, 
the answer to the question then of, well, why do you care what these people think is because you too are on the left. So you too take seriously accusations of racism, transphobia, sexism, yes. <laughs> and don't want to do those things. And so when people launch those charges at you, they are able to hurt you with those because those are things that, I mean, when someone accuses you of, of coddling Nazis, like... That works. Right. You can say, oh, that's objectively unreasonable. But because you are a person who is so horrified by the idea of coddling Nazis, that is, in fact, a good way Correct. to get under your skin. I am also African-American. <laughs> but that's nothing here or there. Indeed. Um, just in terms of um, <clears throat> my relationship with Nazis. Um, well, <laughs> you, that, you're saying that gives you some like there's some reason that that would cause I'm you just to saying, just as, like Nazis as much personally. as I might like to cuddle them for some reason they don't like to cuddle you me know, back. That sounds like to me. That sounds like identity <laughs> politics to me, Bree. <laughs> right. Okay. So Nathan, I, I, the reason I wanted to have this conversation with you, and you know, sit tight. We'll be taking some more yeah. callers, but I want to make sure we get unpack some of these ideas first. Is because I think you stand out among leftists as engaging very directly with the raw material that's coming out from people on the other ideological side of the aisle. You read their books. You yeah. wrote an amazing article where you wrote, read all of the books by the pod save guys, right? <laughs> like, oh God. I didn't even, I suppressed that memory. Yes. I even read the liberal read the, books, which are even worse than the conservative books. Right. You, you, and you, you, you engage substantively with the arguments and you have counter arguments. And what I find to be so refreshing about that is because in my, in my view, my perspective is, that there are a lot of liberals and leftists who know what the right opinion is to have on X, Y, and Z thing. They know that it's bad to be bigoted. They know that it's bad to hate people based on their identity. They know that it's good to have social programs and bad to be Republican and good to expand voter rights. They know the positions to have. But they haven't always Mm -hmm. analytically landed at that position. They've been kind of delivered a moral verdict that they can't always substantiate with words because liberals tend to live in bubbles and conservatives are in their own bubbles, but the world is we're at the actions happening are places that are tend to be liberal dominated, like in these cities. So Republicans in these cities tend mm-hmm. to be better at defending themselves because they've always had to, they went to colleges where most yeah. people are liberals and they are, are used to citing their federalist papers, chapter and verse. Meanwhile, liberals just go, Psh, Oh, he's a racist. Oh, he's a conservative, whatever lame. And that works. When you're in a college where 80% of people think just like you and you never have to actually defend your view, everyone just nods and agrees. But out in the real world, suddenly you're at a severe disadvantage when someone else can, you know, they're referencing enlightenment philosophers and they're talking about, you know, whatever they, they do to justify their views. And liberals are like, uh, <laughs> or alternatively, um, people yeah. say things like, um, I don't know if you saw that clip that went around where I think it was John Waters, one of those conservative news guys, were interviewing white liberals on the street about why it was that uh, black people, um, why, why voter ID laws were racist. And they, ha- they got white people saying things like, well, black people just don't know how to find polling places and they don't know how to use IDs and black people, they lose their, like they, they, were, they were saying, they, they sounded racist. That's yeah. <laughs> what it sounded like, like, you know, black black yeah, people just yeah. are so incompetent that we can't figure things out as opposed to pointing to kind of some of the structural barriers and trends over broad populations. And we end up in that position of just they they didn't have the language. They knew ideologically that they, that this thing yeah. is racist, but didn't know why. It's just Yeah. 
No, it, it's true. And they don't they aren't prepared to deal with conservative arguments. I mean, you see this. This is why people like Stephen Crowder and Ben Shapiro uh, can go around and get it to college campuses and they make a point that nobody's ever nobody's thought about how they would respond to before because they just take the position for granted. I mean, there's a, there's a couple points here. I mean, I think there's the practical point of you need to know your enemy, you're right? You need to know the other side's case if you're going to know how to argue against it effectively. There is also the case as you pointed out that if you inherit your beliefs through be, having them passed down to you rather than through a process of reasoning, then you might hold the right belief for the wrong reason. I mean, this is what this is what John Stuart Mill's argument in On Liberty was, the whole thing about like you have to you can't suppress the other side's opinion because you have to know why it's wrong. If you don't know why it's wrong, then you actually have no idea that you're right. Right. If you've never figured out, if you've never engaged with the strongest person version of the counter argument, then you, mm. for all you know, you could be completely mistaken because you've just yeah. ignored the counter arguments. I try and interrogate my own beliefs so that that makes me a really confident person, because then when I come yeah. out, like I actually know what the right are going to say. It's shocking right. how bad this is. In fact, one of the whole reasons that um, I started Current Affairs was that I submitted an article to a national magazine and they said they really liked my writing, but they did. But they thought the topic nobody cared about. And the topic was I wanted to write about the uh, the books of Thomas Sowell. Now, Thomas mm. Sowell is one of the leading conservative intellectuals, probably the best selling writer on economics in the country. And the editor of this magazine replied to me and said, who cares what Thomas Sowell thinks? And I thought, well, <laughs> millions of millions of people. Have you seen the YouTube videos with all the views? And there's no good response. There's still no good article responding to Thomas Sowell's point. And if you read his books, you find that they're incredibly compelling. They're, he's a brilliant writer. Mm. They're very well argued. They mm. engage. He quotes the left. He quotes mm. our books. Um, but the response on our side is just to pretend he doesn't exist. And then he says, ah, they pretend I don't exist because they have no response to my arguments. Mm. I, I will say, you know, I, I talk a lot of trash about law school and being a lawyer. But I will say that I think one habit that was very useful that I got out of my legal writing classes is that we are compelled, your grade depends on, you are required <laughs> to engage the other argument. Like, Pretending it's not there gets you nowhere in real life as a lawyer. No matter how Try bad it a brief. is, right? Like no matter how bad it is for your client, you cannot pretend that the bad case law, the bad argument, doesn't exist because it will be taken as fact if you don't address it, right? And I, I find myself when I was an editor, you know, when I write my own pieces, like I almost structure the piece around the anticipated counter arguments, and, and I know that as an editor sometimes. Yeah. I, you know, a writer would say to me, I would say, you have to address this. And they would say, oh, but like that point is wrong. And I'd be like, okay, but everyone <laughs> who's reading this, who doesn't already agree with you is going to be thinking this. So you need to address that head on. You can't pretend it doesn't exist. Otherwise you're basically admitting that you're writing this for the choir of people that already agree with you. I, I talked to a, uh, a writer at, 
I, I was trying to encourage a writer, not at our publication, but at a major, it was like Vox or somewhere. I can't even remember where they were. But it was, I was trying to encourage them in the early days of the pandemic when Alex Berenson was spreading so much misinformation to write a long thing responding to Alex Berenson because I wanted to be able to send it to people, but I didn't want to have to write about it myself because he, I don't know the relevant, uh, but they were a writer that specialized in it. And they were like, but Alex Berenson is so wrong. All of this is just discreditable. It would just be giving him airtime. And I thought, but he's got so many followers, so many people. And they're like, the, the fact that he was so wrong was considered a reason not to write about him. And I just thought that was insane. <sighs> yeah, I, I'm with you. And, you know, I really appreciate that you two were willing to, like, come on to Bad Faith and have that really amazing dialogue with Glenn Greenwald. Like, and I don't know, I won't speak for you, but I think that you both came <laughs> out of it feeling like... Good. Like you represented your views. You found some points of agreement, but were able to flesh out the points at which you disagree. You know, Glenn made some concessions in there, you know, and I think it was it was like kind of mutually beneficial. And, uh, you know, you and I have also talked to another Glenn, uh, Glenn Lowry. Right. right. We both had dialogues with him and he's a, a conservative. He said a lot of stuff that we really don't agree with. I find some of his stuff about black culture to be kind of appalling. Um, but I had him on uh, Current Affairs podcast. And, uh, you know, I, we great. have a sense Everyone should go on the left that. that we're always going to lose if we engage, too. There's like this fear that we can't defend our points. And... I think that actually, you know, with Lowry, like he conceded a lot, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, it feels like it's moving the conversation forward. Now, here's my frustration, Nathan. In my experience, when I try to put together panels like I did with you and Glenn, like I will see two people that I like fighting about something on Twitter. And I'll think to myself, oh, I see points on both sides of this. Let's bring them together yeah. to have a conversation about it. Nine out of ten times the party that is more yeah. left, like I would say you like taking the more kind of like lefty cons consensus position, yeah. you know, is the one that doesn't want to come on. Right. So like, for example, yeah. we just did this episode, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse episode. I ideally would have loved to have someone who kind of was like taking the Kyle Rittenhouse you know, is a, a white supremacist and he was hundred percent guilty. And there's no self-defense. And someone who was like, Whatever you think about Kyle Rittenhouse, there's a strong self-defense case here, right? Not, I don't necessarily want to have someone on that's going to be like, I think he's an American hero. That doesn't, yeah. that's not interesting to me. But I would be interested in having someone on who wanted to talk about the Matt Orfila video, maybe a Matt himself or Glenn or whomever it is, and try to like hash it out because there's a version of the person who's you know described as defending defending Rittenhouse who's not exactly defending Rittenhouse, but who was just making out making the point that there were some media inaccuracies in the course of describing the case and that um, there was in fact a case for self-defense and people should be shocked if the verdict in fact came out that way. And it would be useful to have them in conversation with someone who ha was having the different kind of moral conversation about whether or not he should have been there and whether the rights attitudes toward Kyle Wittenhouse were driven by white supremacy or whatever other cultural factors to show that they're not actually having the same argument right like there, there are th those are those aren't actually views that are in tension with each other you you can mm -hmm. believe that kyle rittenhouse was motivated by white supremacy and also that there was a media narrative that was mismanaged and also that he had a self-defense case sure. all of those things can be true but you don't really realize that unless you can get the two people in the room however i always find it very 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 difficult to get people to want to engage with the more heterodox thinker yeah 
I think it's a I think it's a disaster that uh, we don't do this on the left. I thought that uh, I thought that we did a very poor job in the in the Rittenhouse case. The right really dominated the uh, the, the narrative. I just uh, I I think we have to learn to defend our ideas, and that if we don't defend our ideas. It, we look weak. We look like we can't defend our ideas. We look like our ideas are wrong. We look like there are no counter arguments. And I happen to believe enough in the left to where I don't think that's the case. Right. Yeah. I, I happen to believe that a lot of the supposedly ridiculous social justice positions, if read charitably and if we don't take the most extreme examples, have something to them. Right. Uh, but I, I don't But when we don't actually stick up for them, you're just you concede the fight. And there are people watching. This is the thing What they don't see is there are plenty of people who are apolitical and depend upon the limited scraps of information they get about a thing to make their mind up. And when they hear one side making a case and they look for the other side's case and the other side hasn't made a case, um, then they uh, they drift in the direction of the person who showed up. Yeah. And I will say, so I went on um, Andrew Sullivan's podcast about a month before he came on my podcast. And... I asked him what the reaction of his audience was to me coming on. And he was like, everybody was like really nice and really appreciated your perspective. They didn't always agree with you. And I got a bunch of people who like came and sort of subscribing to bad faith off of that saying, Oh, I'm libertarian. I'm not really on the left, but I appreciated your willingness to engage and make these arguments. And I think the way you think is interesting. And then when I had Andrew Sullivan on my show, I mean, a lot of my, my, my followers were like supportive and interested, but there was also a lot of, Oh my God, I can't believe you're talking to those white supremacists and yada, 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 which isn't necessarily wrong. I mean, you can have the view that you have of him. I'm not trying to police anybody's opinion on Andrew Sullivan. And certainly I disagree a great deal with uh, his positions on race. However, it, the asymmetry is notable. And maybe this comes back to your point earlier, Nathan, about we care about social justice issues and their moral stakes for us are higher. But it yeah. feel it was almost yeah. embarrassing when, like, it was like embarrassing to be as a host when, you know, Tom, we, I took a, a picture with Thomas Shatterson Williams after we recorded in person, and he tweets it out, and all of his followers are like, "Oh, I can't wait to hear this conversation," and then I retweeted it, and all my followers are like, "Ah, oh, I can't believe you sat in a room without wife beater." <laughs> I was like, "Oh dear, I shouldn't even retweet this because I don't want to, like, do this to my guest." I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But yes, I mean, the the, the, uh, the partial asymmetry, I think we can understand, right? Because like to to his people, I guess, you know, you're associated with the socialism and Mao and uh, Stalin and whatever, which is bad. <laughs> but they don't really think that they don't have that as much outrage as social. They don't dislike the left as much as we dislike white supremacy and wife beating. And I think that yeah. kind of makes sense. Right. And so Andrew Sullivan has said things that I think are essentially white supremacists. The New York Times did an interview with him just fairly recently where they tried to get him to back off of the hardcore genetic race differences thing. And he kind of affirmed, he's like, I still think there's something to it. And so, um, you know, so our side really, really doesn't like white supremacy. Um, and libertarians are less opposed to Bernie Sanders than we are to white supremacy. So there's going to be a difference. But I do think partially we need to get a little bit past that and go like and understand that from a pragmatic perspective, 
you know, having that level of outrage does not, you know, to the point where it prevents us from having discussions that could get people into our side and could be a weapon to undermine white supremacy. Um, if we avoid those opportunities for reasons of, of distaste, we are actually hurting our cause. Yeah, I mean, but here's the thing. I'm, I'm glad you brought up that example because here's the thing. Even if we stipulate, just let's stipulate to the idea that, you know, someone is a white supremacist. I, whatever, for whatever temperamental reason, like I've talked to my mom about this, like, why is it that I have this? Is it just a high tolerance for conflict? Is it, is it like a, my Leo ego, which is outsized, which makes me feel like I can just chit chat with white supremacists and it's like no skin off my back? Like, <laughs> I don't know what it is, but I, I obviously, despite feeling the way I feel about people, don't find it to be off-putting. And I'm not asking other people to put themselves in the position that I'm willing to put myself in. But this is, I think, what was at the core of people's frustration with me about my willingness to kind of maybe talk more to right-wing figures, whether it's Nazis or whomever, is that I, to me, I have never subscribed to that whole you know, it's not my job to do X, Y, and Z. Oh, I'm black. I'm already like persecuted. It's not my job. I, I see this in my everyday life. It's not my job mm -hmm. to talk to racists. It's not my job to convince anybody. Like I fully believe on an individual level, like totally, it's not your job. I understand how taxing it can be. I remember being called upon to have all kinds of conversations in law school that I didn't want to have. And I was just trying to pass and get my grades in. You know, I totally get that on an individual level, but on a like systemic level, if it's not your job, it's nobody's job. And I think that having these conversations benefits me and my community, and that's why I do it. So to me, how kind of malignant the other person is really isn't a factor for me and wanting to engage. Also, I don't, my view, my understanding of racism and white supremacy and bigotry in the world is that like, it's so prevalent and it, at this point, like, I kind of have this maximalist definition of white supremacy that means it almost doesn't even mean anything. It's like, yes, everyone's white. Yeah. And I'm not saying that everyone is like, has the same right. views as right, Andrew right, Sullivan right. on race <laughs> hierarchies or sure. whatever. But at a certain point, it's like, if we're really drawing hard lines about like not wanting to talk with racists, like a lot of you should be going home for Thanksgiving. Every, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and every and it's a yes, and we exonerate ourselves, right? If we can't talk to racists, then right. you know, but we are excluded from that. But again, just to just to give a partial defense of the of the of the uh, of the of the angry <laughs> of the vitriolic angry person who does not believe these conversations should be had, um, and I don't really, mm. for you and I, it is in fact quite literally our jobs. Right. Yeah. We are persuaders. We our job is to go out and persuade. You know, you are the ambassador for Bernie Sanders. Try to bring this message, his message to people. My job is to engage the other side. So we have to sit down and have these arguments. I understand, though, why someone if someone has put someone in the Nazi box, they feel like they're a Nazi. We stipulate that they're a Nazi. <laughs> um, I understand the feeling that goes like, no, what that person deserves is not a sit down and hearing them out and having a civil conversation. What that person deserves is a punch in the face. That's what they deserve because of what the, they because of what their ideas have done because of what their ideas would do if they were implemented. That is the only thing I am willing to see from them. That's the only thing I want to hear out of their mouths is the the yelp of pain as they get punched in the face. I understand the instinct, right? 
I mean, mm-hmm. like Charles Murray at Middlebury is the big example. Now, I think Charles Murray, I understand, like, I get viscerally angry at Charles Murray because he's so calm and he uses all these statistics. And But, when it, but what, what he's saying boils down to black people are stupid. Like, and he puts this veneer of civility on it. And he wants you to participate mm-hmm. in this veneer of civility and have this mm-hmm. discussion with him over whether... It's true. Or let's let's discuss all the statistics on this. And so I get mm-hmm. people who feel the other part of it is powerlessness. We don't mm-hmm. know what to do against the, these kind of guys. We're tired of seeing the win. And so on a visceral level, we want to lash out and hurt them and give them what feels like justice. And I think that is part of, of where it comes from. It is not necessarily yeah. productive, although... Nothing too bad came of Richard Spencer getting that punch, and it was very satisfying to a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing, and, and I wrote about this in um, a piece on shame I did for Current Affairs back in the day. You, you brought up deservedness, Nathan, and I think that's really important yeah. because, and I said this to, to Talia as well. This isn't about what I think people deserve. I, if we're talking about deserve, then there's plenty of people who might deserve the death penalty even though morally i'm against it right there's there's people who deserve to rot in jail forever because they've done some dastardly horrible thing even though i don't think that that's in line with my views on as what as a humanist and as an abolitionist what is best for society you know and there is no doubt that someone has who has all kinds of hateful beliefs deserves to be thrown in a gulag or you know, in, in, in the pyramid, as, you know, the late great Michael Brooks used to say on his show. But at the end of the day, like, that's not my project. You know, like, I, I, that's right. like almost like a kid throwing a tantrum. Ah, life's not fair. You deserve X, Y, and Z. Like, totally emotionally, I'm with you. But, like, I'm, I want to win. Mm. And when you talk about having a debate with someone who thinks, like, Black people are stupid, sometimes I think, well, okay, the best thing I can do is sit down with someone and beat them in a debate and dare them to make that argument. <laughs> You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's important because um, you're right that when we start thinking in terms of what does their transgression is that how bad is their transgression in terms of what kind of retribution would be justified if we believed in retribution? Oftentimes, the answer is extreme retribution would be justified if we believed in retribution. And that leads, you know, that's the theory on which the horrible American mass incarceration state is, is built, is, is this attempt to give people what their transgressions deserve, right? And the answer is, well, you, kill, you committed this horrible crime, like, what could possibly, what could we do to you in response that could possibly be as bad as what you did? Well, taking away your entire life and having you rot, maybe, maybe that, and even that doesn't get it. So we, we, we kill them or we, you know, we really deprive them. We put them in solitary confinement, but on the left, you know, we understand that the instinct for vengeance is first off, a, a probably not a morally justified instinct, but also is, is totally unhelpful I mean, the American prison system, what we what we get is the satisfaction of seeing wrongdoers have horrible things happen to them. What we don't get is a reduction in crime. Right. Because, you know, the Norwegian prison system, which coddles prisoners, has a way lower recidivism rate. So we accept more crime in exchange for the satisfaction of vengeance. (laughs) And, And that's an instinct we need to release ourselves from. You heard it right here, folks. Nathan J. Robinson says, coddle prisoners, oh, no. coddle oh, no. racists. Oh, no. <laughs> ah!
<laughs> prisoners are popular on the left. Racists are not. So part of that is okay. But that's the thing. Like the the only way we get to keep this policing is indulging the fiction that like not everybody is racist. Like. It, it, it's a like in it, 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 it pretending that we are actually keeping races out in any meaningful way. What you're doing is like to make that work in your brain, like to make that at all seem plausible. You're basically denying. You're like underselling racism. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I feel like having a maximalist view of racism like almost makes me mm. more tolerant of racism. Like uh, more tolerant of racism is not the right way to put that, but like. <laughs> if you if you live by if you care what the reply tweet said you say so many quotable things that if taken out of context <laughs> this is why you this have is why to i'm not care. ready for office this is why people are like run i'm like no i've been doing a podcast for years now there's too much out there but look <laughs> ben producer ben makes jokes all the time about how he has a treasure trove on me and like he could extort me for the rest of my life if he really wanted sure he to does. but like here, here's the thing I said this to my mom the other day. I've been vetting this. I put this through my black friend's vetting machine already. <laughs> All right. I asked my mom. I said this to a couple of black friends. Look. I am no fan of racism. Okay. But, you know, <laughs> my, my belief that it's basically like I, I have to interrogate my own racist beliefs all the time. Right. Like. I, I don't I'm not, I don't subscribe to that thing where uh, you're black you can't be racist. Like I engage with other people of other backgrounds, and I am confronted frequently with my own ignorance about cultural differences, with my own um, the the ideas that I've been like I've subscribed to stereotypes that I didn't realize I had until I started engaging with other groups in a substantive way. Like I I mm. try to be honest with myself, and I know that if I feel that way, other people are also having the same experience, right? So my view that everyone is racist like makes me feel like. It's not necessarily the be-all, end-all, drag-out, worst thing in the world you can be the way that we frame it in today's society. And sometimes the right is like, stop using the accusation of racism as a cudgel. Like, they, they, I think, are accurately pointing out that it is, like, the worst thing in the public discourse that you can be called. Like, you're a racist. And that's why they've completely rejected the idea that anybody's a racist. Oh, Kyle Rittenhouse, nobody's a racist because it's such a bad thing. And there's a part of me that's like, I almost would rather people treat it as a less bad thing, a thing that like is very relatable and that we're all kind of dealing with, like the, like 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 pollution in the air, like we're all kind of implicated, so that it might make them more willing to acknowledge that it's something that they are have within them as well, instead of just denying it outright because it's such a polarizing notion. And what I said to my mom was like, what yeah, if, yeah. just what if? Of all the terrible things in the world to do and be and think and feel, what if being a racist isn't the worst thing that you could be? But I, I agree with this, by the way. Um, got him! Got that, him, guys! <laughs> I've got no, no. to commit. But, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. I actually think the right... Yes, there are a segment of the left that does say, like, oh, there's the racists, they're the bad people. That's not us. Uh, so people who we put them in again, everything is putting people in little boxes. So, oh, once person, someone's in the racist box, they're the bad person. And uh, which we we are free of that. But actually, there are more sophisticated analyses on the left that that really do say this. Right. A lot of the people mm -hmm. who talk about systemic racism, 
you know, people on the right, I don't think engage as much as they could with some of the literature here, which does suggest that because everyone has racial biases, that because when you're accused of being racist, you take it a little less, you should be a little less horrified by it because the right has this view of racism where it's a Klansman. So if I'm being accused of doing something racist, I'm being accused of being a Klansman. Well, I actually think if people read Ibram X. Kendi, he has a more nuanced perspective than people assume where he's he's actually asked, Mm. do you, first off, he says, do you think white people are inherently racist? And he says, no, I don't think white people are inherently racist. I think racism is something we, we do. I think it's something that black people and white people do. He thinks people of color can be racist. He thinks that racism is everywhere. Lots of people do it all the time and that we shouldn't. He has a very specific thing where he says, I do not think we should see racism, racist, as a thing that is like a person is a racist. That person is a racist. I think we should... Like it's intrinsic. Like it's yeah. People act like it's immutable. It becomes, no. it becomes he, a kind of essentialism. He says racism is a thing you do and it's a thing you can stop doing. And yeah. it's not essential. He said white people are not inherently racist. He said mm-hmm. white people are not inherently racists. There are no racists who are just like, oh, racist. And you put them in. The, I mean, there maybe are some. But he emphasizes this because it emphasizes choice. And so he says you could stop. You, I mean, you know, yes, we have implicit biases. But, you know, a lot of the right here is Ibram X. Kendi. And they're like, oh, we have to purify the racism within ourselves. But he actually says something that is a little more subtle and a little closer, close to what you're saying, which is that you know, we should actually kind of diminish the power of that term and come to understand that we're probably all doing racist stuff all the time and that we just need to figure out when we're doing it and stop doing it. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because I, 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 Andrew Sullivan kept trying to get me to comment on Kendi and I haven't read his book. And I know that when I read Robin DeAngelo's book, you know, I my my issue with Robin D'Angelo is that what is ultimately kind of HR advice, which isn't necessarily bad, is being treated like it can solve our like yeah. structural racial problems, and not that the book itself is bad. It's just being yeah. misapplied, right? And so, yeah, there's a lot of like kind of like there's a weird virtue signaling thing that happens on the left, where like dissing on Robin D'Angelo is a cool way to show how like you're not part of the dumb Libby woke crowd. I've done right. it. <laughs> well, she's embarrassing in some well, ways. Well, sure, but look, you actually you. Thank you, Nathan. You purchased my copy of White Fragility because I was supposed to do a write-up for Current Affairs. And then when I actually read it, I was like, I'm just not that passionate about this because like, there's nothing, it's not like bad or wrong or that crazy or anything. It's just, it's, it's what culture is doing with her more than what she is doing in the book. That's the problem. And so I haven't read Kendi, but I appreciate that you yeah. have. Again, you're one of the rare leftists that actually engages with the source material instead of it, getting it, it sucked up in what is ultimately our own version of kind of like, cultural signaling of belonging you know you got to prove you're a good dirtbag leftist by saying oh i'm not down with kindy i'm i i'm a worker and all i care about is union organizing yeah. and kindy is dumb identity politics and it's like maybe he is but i haven't read him so i'm gonna not weigh in no i i i think both kindy and d'angelo are a little more interesting than they get i mean i wrote a quite negative article about d'angelo because ultimately 
she doesn't she does emphasize the personal transformational aspects of this thing and doesn't you know really have like really encourage people to be part of a political program and i think that's the core problem with her work is she is like yeah she's used in corporate hr but she she structures herself she sells herself that way too but mm-hmm. the core thesis of her book right white fragility that white people are often very very sensitive when you accuse them of being racist is just confirmed yeah. by all the it, it, just the hyper of the reaction to her um, right it's ridiculous right like oh, right i think there might be a little bit of a sensitivity here for among white people to being called racist right and it's i don't know like it's just it was it's such a um like what really struck me about reading the book was that it's just so pat it was just such an obvious yeah Oh, no. I mean, I don't mean that and like even to be critical it was just like this is what has been happening in these diversity seminars forever like as someone who Sometimes I think the people who are talking about this also just are not from that world. And, you know, I was a corporate lawyer for like right. seven years. I sat through a lot of diversity trainings, like, <laughs> and nothing that she wrote was like that unfamiliar. <laughs> it's no. just what you do. You're in a corporate environment. They had this training so that there's not a lawsuit. They can say that they did the training. If anybody touched somebody or said something and it is what it is, it's not, you know, I don't, I, I don't think they're necessarily effective, but like as someone who definitely did experience some harassment at the firm, like I didn't hate that occasionally the men were told not to leer and say inappropriate things. And that is what it was, you know? So if my big problem, I I think if my big problem with the left is, yeah, we avoid these debates with the right. We pretend they don't exist. My my counter problem with the right is that they read the left. I mean, you know, Christopher Rufo will cite lots of critical race theorists and whatever. And, you know, there's there's a cynical theories book that cites all the postmodernists. But they don't give a charitable reading. They give like the most unfair possible reading. And that's what that's my problem with the conservative criticism of Kendi and D'Angelo. There are plenty of Mm. serious criticisms you could make. Mm -hmm. But like. Kendi's interesting. Like he's actually very smart and very interesting. There, there are really good arguments that his racist, anti-racist framework is a bad framework, and that's fine. And that, like, he overemphasizes the degree to which all disparities are necessarily the result of racism. Fine, but mm. like, engage mm-hmm. with him interestingly, seriously. This is what I said to Glenn Lowry. I said I find that conservatives who complain about like wokeism and whatever are not doing the interesting work of like trying to see what's valuable in the ideas and they become kind of boring as a result. Yeah. I, and, and your point about letting them be the face of the crit- criticism, it really lands with me because I, I will often like when I, when I had Glenn Larry on, what I said to him was like, I'm interested in you because I think that I agree with you insofar as that there is something that needs critiquing here. There is something about this performativity, the virtue signaling, there's something that's there, but mm-hmm. you are coming to conclusions that I are not mine, right? And if I don't engage yeah. you, like there are people who feel like something's off and no one else is making the critique, so they just fall in line with you and your beliefs, which I think are the wrong antidote to the problem. And if I'm not making the critique, right. I can't present a better, what I perceive obviously to be a better path forward you know, that's progressive. It's like, you know, that. yeah, no, you know, the core example of that, though, I was just gonna say Trump. Right? Yeah, I was, just, like, I was about to say the same thing. Yes. Like, this is all <laughs> Trump. This is like, exactly. oh, well, he's making the he's making the cr- correct critique. And he's the only one making it. So he must be right. So we're gonna vote for Trump. Right. 
exactly. Exactly. Okay, so Nathan, we've been going for a little over yes. an hour now. Should we take just a handful of questions? You don't have I to take questions. It's call in. And people are supposed to call in. <laughs> well, you know. I, I am sorry to the callers for. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're they're fine. I mean, we last time we didn't even get to have a guest, so um, I'm happy not to be flying solo. But let's hear from Sal. Sal, can you unmute yourself? Oh, Sal changed his mind. Okay, let's hear from An Andrew. Oh, am I doing it right? Andrew, you're up. Hey, can you hear me? Yes. Ah, cool. Yeah. So I think um, this is a pretty worthwhile conversation, and I'll keep my my comments and question real quick. I think that I agree with your characterization that um, there are a lot of issues that people on the left just kind of don't want to uh, put their foot in because it's just always tumultuous. But I think that actually when it's pointed the other mm -hmm. way, I don't I don't think that necessarily we should. Uh, characterize the right as always willing to have that debate because they think they have the upper hand. I think a super uh, prime example would be when uh, Jordan Peterson had kind of agreed to do a debate on Marxism. Richard Wolff took him up on the offer and then they basically priced, they basically priced the event out of the university's uh, pocketbook range so that he wouldn't have to debate Richard Wolff and Richard Wolff ended up doing his own thing. I think there are people on the left kind of always willing to to attack with a very well thought out critique a lot of the right um and i guess i i also agree mm -hmm. that there's um but there's there's a, w a way that w people kind of shy away from going back to the left i think a, another good example would be like um sam cedar debated you there there's kind of this characterization mm -hmm. of sam that he'll debate anyone anytime uh, but I think that really only points to the right, because when he debated you, he kind of got trounced and then sort of doubled down on uh, on backing away from, I thought, the correct position in that example, because he kind of just got his ass handed to him and didn't really want to come up to it. So I guess, um, oh, I had a third thing, but I've been waiting forever. I forgot it. Um, sorry, oh, no, Andrew. That's, sorry. No, that's okay. Sorry, I've, I've really enjoyed listening to this, though. I think it's been... Um, I think it's been critical. And I guess like um, keeping the focus on systems and power seems to be the right way to go. Like, I think we always should interrogate everything. Like, for example, um, with the Rittenhouse uh, topic, I think that unfortunately, the, the way that the law is structured does provide him an argument for self-defense. Now, I, yeah. I completely disagree with his politics yeah. and everything, but I think we should be attacking the system and the power that's upholding a scenario where uh, Trayvon Martin is dead for a pack of Skittles and Kyle Rittenhouse is acquitted on all charges um, after going into a protest mm -hmm. completely ill-prepared as a 17-year-old with poor politics. So I guess, like, I do think it's very worthwhile to always put our yeah. our foot into the the fire. And, and with the example of, like, I can't remember that... Um, lady's name that you debated about um, um, whether or not de-radicalization is kind of worthwhile. I think that realistically on both the left and the right, because of what you're talking about, Nathan, earlier, is that people haven't interrogated um, the opposing mm -hmm. viewpoints. There's actually a lot of people who just aren't that firm in their beliefs. And so I think it's pretty much always worthwhile to, in the most yeah. public venue possible, go after the the right wing point or even maybe a point that's held very widely on the left like i would maybe point out 
a lot of people's support for vaccine mandates is, is a prime example right now. I think that there's always a way to kind of go at it from a systems and power level and, and just know that you're going to weather a lot of vitriol from people who, who have not interrogated their points and just take the win on the whatever, 10, 15% of people who are open to um, a different point of view, but just have not been exposed to it. Um, yeah, I think that's right. Thank, thank you so much for that, Andrew. Yeah, I, I don't know. What do you, I, I, it's funny that you even described my conversation with um, Talia the debate because I, I wasn't, for, I wasn't coming into it with a position. <laughs> I was simply just asking, you know, what she had learned from her experience and why she takes the approach. Why, you know, what is your argument for why your approach is the best approach? I don't have strong feelings against punching Nazis. I just wanted to, to, you know, I read the book and when you spend so much time with the community, I would expect you to just learn something and take something away from like what drove them, what motivated them to choose that path. And, you know, it's just very interesting that there's, I often find there's a presumption that when I start to ask people questions about stuff in the context of interviews, that I'm taking an antagonistic position. Like I'm trying to fight them on something as opposed to just have a better understanding of why they've come to the position that they've come to. And I think that's something about where we are culturally as well. Andrew's point about uh, the right, uh, not, not characterizing them as always being willing to debate, I think is very important because I have in mm -hmm. fact found this too. Um, Wolf isn't the only one who Peterson wouldn't debate. He also uh, wriggled out of a debate with um, Douglas Lane of Zero Books and also uh, I've been. He said he said he'd be interested in being interviewed, uh, being interviewed by me, which I'd love to have. But I'm waiting. I saw that. I'm so waiting. Jealous. Well, uh, <laughs> I don't know if this could happen because I'm trying to get in touch, but uh, not hearing back so far. So um, I w I would be shocked if he'd actually have a conversation. Ben Shapiro, of course, um, you know, stormed out of an interview with a critical questioner on the BBC, right, who was a conservative, and he didn't realize he was a conservative, but the very fact that he was getting critical questions, like tough questions, uh, made him think that it was a hostile leftist. And he well, was supposed to debate Matt Brunig, didn't yeah. do it. Um, he's not the only leftist. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't, uh, you know, he's, uh, I'd, I'd love to debate that guy. There are plenty of people I'd love to debate. Uh, but colleges, I've had the same problem where college groups that have tried to set up the debates find that the other side wants $40,000. Yeah. I also know sometimes people say they're willing to debate, and this goes to your Richard Wolf example, they're willing to debate people who aren't actually that, who they think they're going to be able to beat, right? So, like, for example, when I was talking to Andrew Sullivan, I felt like there were so many people better equipped to leverage all the facts and figures about the history of, you know, segregation. You know, a Heather McGee type, a historian, a Keanu Yamada Taylor type would be able to be much more specific than I can be, right? I'm like an amateur, right? And... Mm -hmm. I always want, like, I sometimes feel like I don't want to be in that position. The reason I want to set up a debate between two other people is because I don't want to misrepresent or do a bad job because I'm not actually, like, a PhD in race studies or whatever who can do the best job. And sometimes I think that people are willing, I'm not saying this about Andrew Sullivan in particular, but sometimes I feel like people are willing to debate me because they presume I, they basically don't hold me in very high esteem. And I think that's a little bit what happened with Sam Cedar. What he said after mm -hmm. the debate was, it's not fair. She's a Harvard lawyer. And it spoke to the idea, I think, that he just wasn't prepared. And I was like, well, I was a Harvard lawyer before you agreed to debate me. <laughs> I didn't, like, get a JD in, like, the three days between when we scheduled this debate and when it actually happened. But I do think there's this weird presumption of, yeah. I don't know, like, I don't know. There's a lot 
there's a lot that you could say about well, why people. That's why Shapiro only dates un, uh, only, only dates, only dates <laughs> undergrads. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think there's definitely something to that. I'm gonna go and take Saul because I think there was he was in line and then got bumped. So I'm gonna invite Saul. Did I do that? Did I do that right? Maybe I didn't do that right. Okay, I'm gonna not do that then. I'm just gonna go to the next. Oops, sorry, I made Saul a speaker. Uh, hi. hi, how are you? Unmute yeah. Uh, um, okay. So my question was this: It's actually twofold. Uh, do you think that uh, calling Winsome Sears the blackface, speaking on behalf of a white supremacist, is it the the same side, uh, the opposite side of the same coin, saying that Kyle Rittenhouse is a white supremacist, even though the three people he shot were white? Uh, that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, and this is just a intellectual idea, is the whole wokeism isn't. The, the whole thing, the posturing there, the status seeking there, which eventually leads to self-immolation. But isn't that uh, easier and cheaper to do than offer things like Medicare for all, uh, uh, cheap, affordable housing? Instead of that, why don't we just do the cheap way out and say that we're woke and we care about identity? And uh, what are your thoughts on that? Thanks for that. For the second point, I completely agree that we get basically identity politics because the Democratic Party has decided they don't want to offer anything substantive yeah. material. 100%. Uh, a That's first your first article, article for us. <laughs> That's your, you, you wrote a brilliant article called How Identity Became a Weapon Against the Left that is essentially making exactly the Yeah, point. 100%. Now, to the first question, so, so two things. I think it can be true. I think that people have sort of overstated what it means that Kyle Rittenhouse's victims were white. When people accuse Kyle Rittenhouse of being a white supremacist, whether or not you think it's true, right? We'll get to that in a second. But when people accuse him of being white, a white supremacist, it's not because he literally killed black people, right? It's because of the idea that he was motivated to come to a protest where black, well, mixed race people were protesting the killing of a man by a police officer, a black man by a police officer, in a way that feels indicative of broader trends of police violence disproportionately against black people. A protest, protesting that racially motivated killing in people's view um, was happening and Kyle Rittenhouse decided to intervene to defend property ostensibly instead of being in solidarity with a protest to defend black life. Like that's the argument, right? It's not really an argument about whether or not he literally killed black people. Now, you can have a different perspective of whether or not it was appropriate for Kyle Rittenhouse to come to the protest. I think that it was probably perfectly legitimate if he wanted to come and like clean graffiti and do some of the other stuff that he did. I feel pretty strongly that you shouldn't bring a gun into that kind of situation, especially if you are so young and timid and insecure about your gun handling skills that you are basically creating a peril the potential of someone taking your gun and then you feeling the need to defend yourself against that happening. Like, I think that's just a powder keg, right? I think that's just unwise for anyone to be in that situation, regardless of their politics. But the white supremacy argument isn't about that idea that he killed black people specifically. You had this other question about Winsome, but I'm going to let um, Nathan in on this. Um, well, I, I just uh, on that that second point that you were addressing first, I, I do think uh, one of the things that we need to be careful of is always, because we live in the discourse now, because we live online, this is also part of it, which is that, like, 
our victories are rhetorical victories. And I think this has been responsible for a lot of the, what is called political correctness, constantly trying to find the correct, the justice in terminology, like the terms that don't have any bad implications, the terms, you know, is that we, it is doing material things is really, really difficult. Organizing massive, large scale protest movements to accomplish impossible political goals. It's really hard. It takes a long time and it is cheaper. It is easier. And, you know, Brie, you, you emphasize the way that it coincides with the interests of the powerful to give us these, uh, these, these small fake victories, these victories of, of image over substance. Uh, but it is also the case that we may have our own temptation to sort of think that we are winning because we managed to change what's on television or we managed to change how people talk about a thing when the actual here out in the material world of poverty and deprivation nothing has really changed except uh, the framework would, that we use to discuss it all. So that's what I was thinking when, when the caller was, was speaking. I think it is a really, really important point that can't be, can't be said enough. Mm. Yeah. The, so the, so the winsome thing is what he's referencing is the, right. The, yeah, I don't know about that. So I can't tell so, what it, the so it's the is. The Lieutenant that? governor, um, of Virginia now, you know, who won alongside Youngkin is a black woman. I believe she's like a veteran and, and has in many ways the kind of um, that perfect mix of kind of um, the kind of identity politics in terms of, you know, being a vet, traditional kind of American patriot that is so uh, common on the right, but also being a black woman that makes her an ideal political candidate for either side, right? Um, but when she won, when they won, there was an article that described her as the black face of white supremacy and the idea being, you know, it's an accusation that I get as well. Whenever you have or a black person whose politics don't align with whatever the majority group majority viewpoint is supposed to be, you're accused of being a voice for white people, a puppet for white people. It is, you know, inconceivable that the views could be your own or it's a kind of a performative grift the way that what Candace Owens does is accused of being that. Now, Candace is someone who had one set of politics at a certain point in her life and then kind of radically switched. And there's a better argument there than that it's potentially inauthentic. But there's an agency that's stripped away from people of color in particular who don't have the orthodox view of the group. And I guess what the question was is, mm. is saying that she is a vo like basically the black face of white supremacy analogous in some way to... Kyle Rittenhouse being called a white supremacist. And I'm not sure if I understand that analogy, but I do think it's not helpful to characterize black conservatives in that way. Cause re regardless of whether or not it may be true in various instances, you know, I think at the end of the day, it just makes the people making that accusation look bad and you should be able to contend with their beliefs on the face of it. I mean, it's re it's really nasty and dehumanizing. It's uh, exactly what led people to uh, call Clarence Thomas a puppet of uh, Justice Scalia, yeah. right? And w w the other thing is, it 
is another case of failing to actually read the arguments because right. I find black conservatism very interesting, actually. Mm -hmm. like, and in fact, when you read Clarence Thomas closely, he's a more interested There's the great book by Corey Robin, The Enigma of Clarence Thomas, where he's actually a, a really sophisticated thinker who doesn't deny the reality of white supremacy, but believes that the state's job isn't mm -hmm. to fix it. Thomas Sowell is a very interesting uh, guy, too. And he gets all these Uncle Tom accusations that are really, really gross. And they call mm -hmm. and he gets defensive and says, you can't you can't deal with my arguments. So you issue this racist caricature of me as just being a mouthpiece for the interests of, of white capital. Uh, you can't prove it. Right. So it's not really helpful because it's an accusation that you can't prove and that is racist. Um, so, yeah, 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 100%. I'm having a lot of fun, Nathan. Like, <laughs> I'm just, I, I was reflecting on how, like, why do I feel so loose and fun? I think it might just be because I don't have a camera on me and there's something kind of delightful about that. Um, so, oh, I thought it was because we get along so well. well but. Obviously, Nathan <laughs> Jay. For those who are, are listening, I just want to take this moment to shout out the fact that the reason that I am now like a three name person. Brianna Joy Gray is because Nathan J. Robinson stuck the J and stuck the joy in on my first published pieces. Is that true? I didn't. Yeah, you did this. Is that the you did this. Some people are very mad at me. Somebody accused me of trying to like steal valor from AOC or RBG. <laughs> Whoa! No, you were you were joy way before. People accuse me of like trying to like make myself into a three initial person because of my own like hubris or ego or something. But it's your fault. The real accusation <laughs> is that you're trying to like subconsciously convey the idea that you're fun and that, that you should be listened to <laughs> and that that's manipulative. By having a long, tedious No, because break. it says joy. Like you're oh, I see. joy gray. You're just like it's just delight. You're a delight, right? You're, you're, you're like manipulating people by, with your wonderful middle name. Yeah, me and me and Joy and me really holding it down. Let's let, let's take a question <laughs> from Casey. I'm gonna go. I'm only gonna take us to a minute, an, an hour, thirty minutes. Because last time I was here for two hours because I cannot be helped. So let's try to make the questions and the answers a little quicker so we can get through a couple more people. I know that Heyman's been waiting for a while. Um, so let me next. Let me next, Andrew. Take next caller. And bring in Kay. Okay. Hey, Kay. You got to unmute yourself, Kay. Kay, you got to press the unmute button on the bottom right hand of the screen. A little mic. I'm going to give you five more seconds to figure it out, but then I got to push on. Three, two, one. All right. Heyman's up next. Tough but fair. <laughs> and thanks for the great discussion so far. So I'm sorry if I'm not going to be able to quote any major uh, authors or anything, but I just wanted to like wondered, right? What if we drop the labels? Like what if like we like what will happen if we like would that lower the stupidity and the angry rhetoric that happens everywhere? If we like don't get into these camps uh, that we are so and so left or so and so right or so and so this so and so that. Or even like, uh, I mean, I mean, I'm a Canadian, so I have more choices in a political sense, right? But even there, we don't mm -hmm. have, it's not that great. But also from even like previously, that was mentioned about the vaccines, right? But even the vaccines, we force people into camps. And now they're actually like, you know, hunkering down again, right? So mm -hmm. I have found that during this whole pandemic and being on, like listening in and listening to the discourse, I think we are not allowing people to have discourse without these labels. Because a lot of people want to learn. And it's like, if even an ally is, I mean, whatever ally they're trying to ally with, 
it's that people like as soon as they say you know what is this or what i would like to help or what what more can i learn or so immediately they're said like you have to take the responsibility to learn this or you'd have to do this and i fear that we're pushing people back into their camps and i'm just wondering like um like if we could do that like maybe for this exercise too what if we don't talk about left or right no color or anything like even the written house case what if we talk about this kid had some issues and no parental oversight who the f says to this kid you go son go protect that store that we don't own or you know whatever and go take care of that uh, you know what police and everyone else should be doing right and also if you yeah, look hey at look mm-hmm. go victims ahead. and also the victims too were uh white right but the key thing is um they also had issues so i'm wondering right. like if we were to talk as people like as the majority right which is most of us like what if we talk about the fact that you know these like there's some major issue at play and we're being divided based on labels and i'm wondering if we talk more as people i'm wondering whether we could solve more and get these some of these crazy guys i'm not i'm sorry I, as a physician i should not i'm not saying crazy i'm just saying <laughs> so you know what i mean right what i'm saying is the people yeah. who take this rhetoric and they just use it for their own uh, you know i'm not talking about these individuals who are victims all of them uh, from a healthcare system or something that didn't prevent mm-hmm. this from happening right but mm-hmm. i'm talking about the people who use this to fan the flames of hate and fear among us like what if we like t- like what if we stop talking about left or right or red or blue or green thank thank you hayman for that hayman says no labels which is a very gen x move what do you think nathan <laughs> Yeah, you know, sometimes I'm tempted by this position too because you think you start to think, well, left, right, this is is this really a useful classification system? I had this debate it was sort of within myself about the word socialism when I was writing the why you should be a socialist book, you know. Should I not mm-hmm. just write why I think these are the things that you ought to believe and they happen to be the set of things that coincide with what is known as as socialism. I I think that the counter the flip side of it though is that labels are in fact useful shorthands for bundles of political beliefs that often occur together because they come out of a common set of principles and they ha- they do actually help us to understand people's political framework so like conservative political thought is a is a framework right it's a framework that has had many conservative political philosophers have articulated this is a, is a way to think about the world in fact thomas sowell himself has said that politics comes from a what he calls a conflict of visions and he describes two different kinds of visions he calls them the constrained and the unconstrained or the tragic and the utopian and they basically coincide with the right and the left and the you know the mm-hmm. the conservative is essentially a pessimist the left is an optimist and mm-hmm. he, he argues mm-hmm. that you know you have you do tend to have these sort of naturally forming ideological camps that occur based on your views about the world and they do tend to occur together i have found that actually the word socialism is useful in describing what i believe on a lot of different issues because i believe the same you know i have the same principles applied to many different issues um i have a socialist approach to those issues and i do actually think that even though the 
putting people in boxes thing, which I've talked about on this in this discussion, I think can be unhelpful where you're constantly going to go, oh, is that right wing or left wing? Oh, it's right wing. It's bad. Or, oh, OK, that's left wing. Yeah. It must be good. Like, I, I think that's stupid. But I don't think we are going to be able to abandon all labels for political ideologies because ultimately, like, ideas often sort of cluster together based on our instincts and our worldviews. Yeah, I'm of two minds about this. I mean, my when you were talking, I was thinking like about how patriotism gets owned by the right. And whatever you feel about patriotism and whether there's a version of it that can be like not nationalistic, which I do think there is, like it would be useful to me if that weren't like assigned a conservative identity. And I'm thinking about Andrew Yang and the forward party and people can laugh, not left, but not right, but forward. But when polled, Americans all agree that they think polarization is bad and they want us just to generically come together. And I do think that there is there are a lot of people that could be open to a kind of Bernie style agenda if it weren't associated with the big D Democrats. The Democratic brand is incredibly toxic, you know, and mm-hmm. people have. Yeah. That's why people like why Bernie. People like Bernie because because exactly. Exactly. At the, and at the same time, I also know that somehow times those shorthands, which can be useful, like, you know, there's a kind of litmus test that can be useful. Like, you know, a real Kano, are you going to identify as a socialist or not? Like there's a kind of, it's almost like it's a test to see how willing you are to maybe irritate some members mm-hmm. of the establishment to show your bona fides, like, to, you know, I mean, it's sometimes, sometimes tests like that are useful. Sometimes they're less useful. I don't know that I need a politician to identify as a socialist, although when they do, it makes me feel more confident that they're willing to buck the establishment in other kinds of ways, right? They've already, they've got skin in the game. Mm-hmm. At the same time, there are people who will say, Oh, Brian, I didn't like your Dave Chappelle episode. You are a turf. And that, if they were asked to explain what they didn't like about me or what I said, they would have to mm-hmm. use words that I think would not coincide with what a, ter- a turf is, even if it's still negative and maybe they're completely justified in feeling that way about me, right? Like I said what I said, but it would be the, the lack of specificity there allows people to think the worst, right? Because they're not actually saying what they mean. And when I was talking to Andrew Sullivan, yeah. one of my frustrations was he wanted to talk about CRT and it being bad. I said, okay, well, what exactly was distributed in Virginia that you objected to? And he didn't have something specific he pointed to. And I said, okay, well, we can debate the definition of CRT, but like, what is it? What is it that you're upset about? He wants to talk about yeah. these like enlightenment principles as being so great. And it's like, God, it's like, okay, but like specifically, what is it that you're trying to preserve about America? And what specifically do you think it is that I'm trying to quote unquote destroy by trying to inject more equity aligned with those equality, if you don't like the word equity, and more equality aligned with said principles and make sure that those principles are actually manifested in reality in a way that they have never really been in the history of this country, you know? And so I, I do think that, oh. like, and I, and I tweeted the other day about Marx, like, I, I should read Marx. Like, guys, leave me alone. Like, I get <laughs> it. Like, I know. It's not because I don't think it's a good idea. It's because I'm lazy and I'm busy, all right? But yeah, I, but the, the reality is that sometimes in these conversations, like, Andrew wanted to be like, Marx, Marx, Marxism. And I'm like... Okay, well, you might be able to beat me in a conversation about Marx because I have maybe you can quote chapter and verse better than I can. But what if we just talk about what we mean? What is the principle that may or may not be Marxism that you object to? And we can just talk about it in real worlds and languages. Mm-hmm. Everything doesn't have to be an allusion to something that right. some dude wrote 100 years ago. Right. You know, also, like, the, the, another example of how labels are both useful and not useful is liberals are a thing. Right. And the word liberal helps me to capture what I did, what I dislike about Pete Buttigieg, 
Hillary Clinton, <laughs> Kamala Harris, Barack Obama. It's a useful like liberalism. That is the problem yeah. with a lot of stuff. But then if you if that word, you know, becomes you're like you, you can very easily start getting leftists do this all the time. We're like, ah, the liberals, the liberals. And then being accused of being liberal becomes then this sort of thing where, my God, that's the last thing I want to be. So like people would denounce me. They go, Nathan Robinson, he's a liberal. And it's like, okay, but what <laughs> is the problem with what I say? And they say, oh, it's liberalism. That's liberalism. And so the, the, the word is a very useful shorthand for a bunch of things. But if it becomes too central to your analysis, it destroys your ability to think. Yeah. And there's people who don't know what liberal means. I mean, it, well, it was so funny. One of the funny things about talking to Andrew Sullivan and why I think we should have more of these conversations is because when I was on his podcast, he kept saying things like, you know, he would say, like, I voted for Biden. Like, as though that meant something positive to me. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, you love right, Joe Biden. Or he goes, well, so, Hillary well, says, no. or Obama says, and I'm like, that is not a vote of confidence for me. <laughs> like, these are not my touchstones for my ideal. There's people the right, right way. Like, and so, you know, I, I, I can see it. I can see it. I, I can see it both ways. Like, I do think politically, like, yeah. I just, so the reason I was late to this call was because I was interviewing Ben Jealous for an upcoming episode. He was the youngest ever president in the NAACP. He's nice. someone who has, he was a Bernie supporter in 2016 and has shown a certain degree of political courage, although there are moments where I've disagreed with him on stuff. And I, and I was asking, we got into it a, bit, a little bit about um, defund the police. And he's someone who is, you know, really pro-black crusader. Like, I, I was really surprised to hear him leverage these objections to defund as a slogan. And I'm like, I'm not going to sit here and bullshit you and pretend like there are not some people somewhere that are put off by the slogan. But also, I'm very frustrated that so much of the discourse has been about how the slogan is bad. Instead of observing the fact that when the slogan first came yeah. out, it was much more popular than it is today. And interrogating what our constant beating up of the slogan has done to make it worse when perhaps explaining the slogan during those same airtime minutes could have made it even more popular yeah, it started right. at like 40 percent, and it's now down to like 20 it could have gone from 40 percent up to 80 you know yeah. joe but you know go ahead sorry. yeah yeah no that's that's a really important point all the people who spend their time criticizing the left could be spending helping us right even when their criticisms are valid like your time is finite and so i do get frustrated with those who yeah yeah <sighs> All right, so maybe we should take one more because we did go on a little long and that's my fault. Um, so let's say, let's maybe make Tucker the last one. And then I want to say, I really appreciate all of you dialing in um, and don't forget to like follow the show so you get alerts when we have upcoming episodes. And I think maybe also follow me on here is helpful. And maybe Nathan, you'll have rooms going forward as well. So you should follow Nathan on here and obviously, <laughs> you know, listen to the Current Affairs podcast and subscribe, oh, obviously. Yeah. I obviously feel strongly about Bad Faith Podcast as well. But Tucker, you were bringing up the rear today. What have you got for us? Yes, I can hear you. Hi, can you hear me? Okay, I just wanted to start this off by saying you're doing a great job. I've been following you since you were first uh, announced as Bernie Sanders press secretary. And I knew I'd like you when you also voted for Jill Stein. Whoop, whoop. And <laughs> yeah, and uh, the Hear the Burn podcast like solidified my like support for you because you are fighting the good fight. And I just want to let you know, you deserve a lot of praise for that because I see you attacked a lot on Twitter and I don't see a lot of people coming to your support. Just wanted to get that out of the way. I appreciate but, uh, that. Thank up... you. Oh, it's no problem. You really should get more praise for that. 
But you brought up uh, Andrew Yang in the forward party. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of their uh, or his goals is to push for ballot measures uh, in states to pretty much get right choice voting, pretty much help third parties grow. Mm-hmm. And here in Arkansas, I'm from Arkansas, Hot Springs, Arkansas, mm-hmm. home of President B.J. Clinton. But <laughs> I ran for uh, the Democratic Party chair back in 2018 on the idea of ballot measures and looking across the country in states that allow the ballot measure process where citizens can propose policies for everyone to vote on, they pass 60 to 75% of the time mm. if they get on the ballot. Mm. So I was thinking since conservative Democrats and corporate Democrats say, oh, we can't do or go left because we don't know if it'll work. Like people don't like it. Clearly they do support it because anytime the minimum wage is brought up, it passed. Like even in Missouri, like, uh, when they brought up uh, right to work, like that was struck down mm-hmm. in red Missouri, like even in Arkansas, we've got the highest minimum wage of any surrounding state. And we've got one of the lowest minimum or unemployment rates. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to ballot measures, I think that progressives can push for ideas that we support, like a state level Green New Deal, state level uh, Medicare for all, like all of these policies to show that they work because we can't rely on congress to do it because they can't even pass a higher reconciliation package than trump did back in 2017 his tax cuts for the rich was 2.3 trillion dollars and the build back better which hasn't even passed yet is just 1.75 trillion Mm -hmm. and 285 billion of that is uh salt tax cuts for the rich Mm -hmm. so we can't rely on congress so i think that going through the ballot measure process would be better for progressives and leftists. And anyone listening, I really recommend you looking up any potential ballot measures in your states. And if they aren't on the ballot, get involved if you support them, like help uh, collect signatures, get people out to vote. Like if we want change, we have to do it ourselves. We can't rely on progressives in Congress to do it because they couldn't even hold up uh, the bipartisan infrastructure bill when Biden, Pelosi, and Schumer promised that they would not sign it unless both of them passed at the same time, but we know that that was a lie. Well, the only truth that Biden has told was that nothing would fundamentally change. Yeah. So, like, I think that ballot measures are progressives' best change, our chance, if we actually want to change the system. And if we don't do it state by state, we ain't going to see any change at the national level. Thank you for that, Tucker. I really appreciate that focus on something specific and concrete. Um, I Look, we had Yang on the show recently and some people felt some kind of way about it, but I, I appreciate what the man is doing. Like you can have every criticism and should have every criticism of how he ran for mayor and not endorsing Bernie and every other kind of thing. And you can think he's a flake and maybe it's true, but if he wants to spend his time, money and attention trying to push ranked choice voting and open primaries, through on ballot measures and raise a public awareness of those issues and the way that he has managed to put UBI on the map publicly as a national priority among a lot of people, then I say power to him and I will support him in any way that he can do that. But I want you to get in here, Nathan. Oh yeah. No, I, I mean, I think Tucker makes a valuable point about the way that, uh, 
the ballot. I mean, in Florida, we got the $15 minimum wage through, through a ballot measure. And you find mm-hmm. that, in fact, the best way to get progressive things through in Florida is to actually let the people of Florida vote directly on policy. Um, of course, as you saw in California with the um, uh, the Uber and Lyft uh, overturning the uh, requirement to make employees full time and getting them back to stat- contractor status, they will still spend hundreds of millions of dollars to try and subvert through propaganda any successful uh, progressive ballot measures. So it is subject to a number of the same dynamics that, that cause politicians to vote badly. And ultimately, you know, we're going to need to have a there's no there's no procedural fix uh, that can get us around uh, the fact that our dis- democracy is dysfunctional. But I do think it is an important area of change that is uh, that is neglected and that then that Tucker's right to draw attention to it. Yeah, I mean, I, I will confess that I've basically given myself a permission to take a break from talking about infrastructure and how disappointed I am by electeds. Uh, because I felt like I've been saying the same thing since like February and I'm tired of hearing myself just kvetch about how disappointed I am in everybody. Um, but I, 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 I don't know. Like, I don't want to be demoralizing and I guess focusing away from electoral politics is one way to do that. And I, I am going to challenge myself to try to figure out a way to do some of that coverage in a way that doesn't make everybody hit the snooze button also. Cause I know that there's a reason why we all focus on electoral <laughs> policy. The horse race is exciting. Like individual figures and characters are exciting. And this idea that we can like have a silver bullet at the top that trickles down is exciting. And it's the same way that it's always a challenge to figure out how to do environmental episodes and stuff that people that doesn't just like make people tune out and get bored. You know, that's my job. So that's on me and I'm working on it and I'm going <laughs> to think about it over the holiday. <laughs> But I want to thank everybody for joining here today. I want to thank you, Nathan. You are such a delight. Oh, thanks, Bray. Always nice to be with you. It's been so much fun. I I said it before, I'll say it again. I think that you are my kind of touchstone in terms of analysis on the left. I don't always agree with you on everything, but I know that you're going to be rigorous. Neither do I. I'm wrong a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I I really appreciate how much work, just pure analytical, like firepower exists in that brain of yours. And I really appreciate you coming on to wrestle with some of these issues with me. And I hope that everybody reads your writing that you're still putting out. Well, this show is really fun. I love this format. Uh, Colin is great. You know, we did voicemail on the Code Affairs podcast. Having people uh, get to talk to you is just, just delightful. It is. It's been really great. This has been a really great community. Thank you guys for keeping it cool and sticking around. And we will be doing this at least once a week. I think I like this time on Fridays. And I'd like to do a second one of these twice a week. And maybe I'll do the other one after our uh, maybe Tuesday because we have an episode that comes out on Monday. And so there's always an opportunity to talk about whatever we've done on um, Bad Faith Pod. So thank you. Um, Keep the faith. And uh, I hope to debrief soon. (laughs) 